Vaxi's musical podcast. In a podcast that is often known for making wild claims and bold statements, allow me to make just one more. On February 9th, 1993, a band that most people didn't know released an album that most people didn't buy. And while that would seem like a recipe for commercial disaster, that album over the last 30 years has not only become a cult classic, I would make the argument that the album Spilt Milk by the band Jellyfish was an overlooked masterpiece in 1993. I'll even go one or two steps further. As the years have progressed and more people have discovered the magnificence of this record, many would agree that this album was arguably one of the greatest rock albums ever recorded that no one paid attention to. Now, I'm sure you might say, Baxi, you say that about every record. Well, not like this one. Out of all the albums that I've grown to love over the course of my lifetime, Spilt Milk by Jellyfish has only gotten better over the course of time, and it was released 30 years ago. This was a wildly ambitious record put together by the band's two primary members, drummer lead singer Andy Sturmer and keyboardist Roger Joseph Manning Jr. From the timelessly ingenious production and engineering by Albie Galutin and Jack Puig, to the sophistication of the songwriting, the lyricism, and the arrangements that were put into place by Sturmer and Manning, it's simply one of the most astonishing records that I have ever heard in my life. And while their first record, Belly Button, which was released two and a half years earlier, was pretty awesome too, the leap between one record to the next I don't think has ever been duplicated by anyone short of Brian Wilson or the Beatles. Sadly, Manning and Sturmer dissolved the band the following year, leaving many to wonder what would have happened if only people were paying attention. Unfortunately, creative and personal differences in 30 years of not talking to each other have made that reunion seemingly impossible, as both have headed in totally opposite directions. On one end, Andy Sturmer would go on to score music for animation, but would never record music in another band or as a solo artist. Roger Manning, on the other hand, did the exact opposite, touring with and or recording with people like Beck, Adele, Roger Waters, Morrissey, Jay-Z, Blink-182, Johnny Cash, and dozens of others. He's also been involved in projects with former Jellyfish guitar player Jason Faulkner in a band called TBIs. He's also been in a couple projects with Eric Dover, who toured with Jellyfish during their final tours together, and in a band called Imperial Drag. And the last time I had spoken to Roger on this podcast, he had just released the first of three EPs with Dover and former Jellyfish bass player Tim Smith under the name The Licorice Quartet. Roger has also released his own solo stuff, including 2005's Land of Pure Imagination, also known as Solid State Warrior, and 2008's Catnip Dynamite. In 2018, he released Glamping, his first solo EP, and earlier this year, he released his latest EP entitled Radio Days. And while Spilt Milk has become a looming part of his ever-growing legacy, Roger Joseph Manning Jr. is a remarkable and enduring talent whose songwriting reflects the sort of imagination and mastery that is incredibly rare. And so, it is a great honor to welcome back singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Roger Joseph Manning Jr. from Jellyfish on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Good to see you. You too. How's it going? Good. Jesus, look at all them damn keyboards. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have you ever walked past a keyboard that you just didn't buy? Well, uh, there's still plenty I can't afford <laughs> now, <laughs> now that the prices have shot through the roof. But yeah, I bet. Uh, it's, it's kind of amazing between all the companies and the last 45 years how much has been made, actually. There's, there's about 100 pieces in this room, and that's, I don't, you know, compared to other folks, this is like a baby collection. <laughs> It's it's kind of like uh, you know any guy our age with like a like an enormous record collection. It's like you know you just keep yeah. building and you can never just give anything up. You just can't say I've had enough of this one. I'll just uh, I'll sell it somewhere. It's always surprising how much vinyl was actually made. I know. It just it's just deeper. Like you can just collect in the '60s if you want, and that's a whole collection. It, it, it's funny. One of the uh, one of the big sections of my record collection has been dedicated to you. <laughs> over the nice. over the years uh I, I i've got the the first two solo albums i got uh you know i just i just got radio days a couple of weeks ago i absolutely uh Great. i absolutely love it and Thank i got you. and i got a lot of questions about it but before i do that i mean like i think the last time you and i spoke you had just released the first licorice quartet ep and okay. uh, and i tried at the time to get all of my looming jellyfish questions out of the way, and I swear to you, that's not going to be my focus here today because I really do want to talk about the stuff that you've done since then because it, you know, it's really remarkable stuff. But I think for me to do that, I, I, I kind of have to set the table here a, a little bit because I, I really, in order to understand, I think, your background, I think people need to understand the, the, the power of Jellyfish. And, and in, in all honesty, I can't think of another record that has aged more gracefully and more powerfully than than spilt milk. And I know I'm not the the first or the last guy to ever tell you this, but I really do believe that it's one of the most magnificent albums ever recorded. And and my question to you about that is, you know, you've built this pretty amazing career over the last 30 years apart from Jellyfish, but yet the responsibility of addressing Jellyfish and that legacy has fallen squarely on you. And I would think that over the course of three decades, that has to be somewhat of a, a cumbersome responsibility about having to be the only one that is willing and accessible to talk about jellyfish. Do, do you find that to be true or, or do you just embrace that moment? Um, I never thought about it as uh, being the sole spokesperson by default. I, I have no issue with that. I don't get tired of answering the questions. Uh, that was a project that I poured my heart and soul into, obviously. And in spite of all the bumps in the road, I'm proud of every single note of music we made together. And I love the fact that beyond our generation that did react positively to a degree, <laughs> that um, word of mouth through the internet, et cetera, et cetera, other generations and people continue to discover it here and there. And they seemed as uh, inspired and enthused as original fans from back in the day. So, I mean, that's the whole point and the completion of the circle. I mean, uh, I found out very early that if my collaborators and I didn't please ourselves 100%, if we weren't 100% proud of what we were giving out to the public, to then have it come back and have people say they were very deeply affected, and, you know, strangers that's an incredible undescribable thing it's uh, the concept of that is so mind-blowing and just reinforces the notion that you know the, the the 
truest, deepest art has, has got to be for it's, it's got to the the uh, mouthpiece creator has got to let that channel just flow yeah. unedited. I mean, obviously, the the dance of wisdom is to know how to edit yourself. <laughs> and, not, you know, it's the it's, it's the old just not blurting out the first idea that pops into your head kind of thing. Right. But, you know, it's, um, it, it's but it's really interesting to hear people discover it and even to even listen to other musicians discover it. It's an album of such, you know, complexity and, and passion and beauty that it's like, again, how many records can you, can you name that have gotten better over time? It's a very, very small number of recordings that have had that and spilt milk is like, is there. I mean, it's, it's just one of those records that, you know, for me has got, it's is gone from being an album I really like to maybe being one of the top two or three albums favorite albums that i own it's funny how that's it's it it continues to grow every time i i hear it well i you know on that note i don't know if this is how it is with the jellyfish records for yourself but there are albums from my past uh that of course i liked growing up and as a teenager in college were very inspirational to me and then you know you move on to other things your attention gets hooked elsewhere you might put those records on a shelf and not listen to it for a while or only hear a song or whatever. And, and then something reminds you how great it is and you go back to it. These days, not only am I happy to go back to these records, but they blow my mind even more. Um, and I think what's happening is when you're surrounded in contemporary culture by, by very few things that are inspiring you, uh, truly affecting you emotionally and really bringing you to a place of awe, if the if the if the current culture is continually downshifting that, then when you go back to an album that you took for granted as a teenager or something like I don't know a, a Yes record or or a Queen record or something, like oh you knew you liked it, but there were lots of things that were happening at the time. You know right. whether it was the new, the new Van Halen album or the uh, the new Cars record, whatever it was, and now you're just like you're out in the desert, you're thirsty, you're starving and you can find some contemporary stuff that satiates you and satisfies that hunger you have. But often some of those meals from the past, so to speak, <laughs> are, are just as fulfilling, if not more. Yeah. And be because so much of what was valued in the culture musically is no longer valued. So you don't, you don't get to choose from that right now. Yeah. Uh, but but every time you go out your front door, all you're seeing is what's being offered today. And certainly in my case, it's it's um, some of these records from yesteryear just leave me in awe. And these yeah. are albums I know upside down, sideways, left in and out. <laughs> right. I've dissected every every single note. And I'm like, uh, and then I was I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. We were both talking about we went on a progressive rock tangent. And I'm not a big prog head, but there are certain moments that I absolutely was affected by and still love. So we were talking about like, you know, well, what's, what was yes's most important record? And we were saying, well, it was probably Relayer or the yes songs live album or something like that. <laughs> and what was, what was Genesis's most important record? We said, well, you know, part lamb lies down on Broadway or selling England by the pound. Right? Both the, and all the, all those albums I just mentioned are somewhere around 73, 74, 75, that era. And we were just telling each other, what's our favorite song? Oh, can you believe that? Blah, blah, blah. And then we, then I told him, I go, do you realize that for both those bands and the records we just named, not a person in the group was older than 26 years old. 
I was just like, he's like, you got to be kidding me. Like how, what, yeah. you know? And, and uh, it just, it was a real stark uh, reality in comparison to what 26 year olds <laughs> are, are offering these days. Uh, and again, I'm not, if you, if you go into the jazz world or whatever, I mean, there's incredible musicians and songwriters happening, but you know, it's more an instrumental music. I'm well, talking about the, the pop, the pop rock contemporary youth but culture. But you're also dealing with a, with a very different environment today than, you know, yes, yes had in 1974 where they could sell albums with, 100%. you know, without, you know, blinking an eye and, and, and they would just, you know, burst off the shelves. You know, that doesn't happen these days anymore yeah. there's lots of factors yeah like i said uh, before you know i, I had uh, I talked to you during the uh, the licorice quartet project with eric dover and tim smith and i, and I liked you know, all three of those eps quite a lot but you you wound up releasing all three of those eps over the course of the next 18 months or so and then you followed it up with the re-release of those first two solo records and, and which were great records too. And I, I have those as well, but you know, it just seems to me that anyone who's been saying to you for the last 30 years, Hey, when are you going to get around to the next solo record has completely missed the point of how much stuff you have either released or re-released just in the last three years. It's a remarkable amount of creativity that's come out of you. And just to, in a short span of time, you got to feel pretty good about that. Uh, I do. I feel very fortunate that my life aligned at such a, in such a way at this time, uh, that I've been able to squeeze in these very personal expressions uh, in between the times that I wasn't putting music out to the public on any kind of regular basis were because of, you know, personal detours in my personal life that it just didn't afford me the opportunity to do that. And, yeah. you, you know, you're always juggling finances and all that stuff. And it's, there's no, there's no handbook when you go to music school or whatever, or you, you're saying, I want to have a career in music. There's no, there's no one right way to do it. Uh, and so you, you figure it out as you go, right? Unless you're in a situation where you had some kind of very popular radio hit or something upon your first venture into the business. Yeah. And that's of course the exception. You're it's, it's no matter who you are, no matter how talented you are, it's a, it's an uphill battle. It's a very, it can be a very long process to just amass a listenership. And just notoriety so that people think about you for hiring you for this or, oh, you and your project have a, have a new uh, batch of material. Well, sure. We know we, you know, we loosely know who you are. So we'll take your phone call and talk about releasing it or whatever. And then, of course, with the Internet, it's so you can have a career, but it's DIY and you're doing everything. And yeah. it's, it's all encompassing, you know, more than any like indie project from the past um very very involved very very time consuming and if you don't know how to market yourself which most musicians don't we don't care to that's not why we got into this we, you know our parents were telling us to take classes in business and finance and we said boring <laughs> am i going to do any of that so i'm very thankful that i've been able to kick out a lot more music in the last five years like you said than i have in the last you know 10 or 15. Yeah. Uh, but I, the, the songwriting has never stopped. The, the ideas have never stopped. They've just been sitting there almost in some kind of Buddhist way of teaching me how to exercise patience <laughs> because like all the songs you have on my new EP, I pretty much knew what I was going for and what they all should sound like. They were, they were finished in my head. Sure. But you, you have to sit down and record them and finish the unfinished lyric and, 
you have to, you know, do the mechanics of it. A lot of the ideas on Radio Days, they've been in the process of being developed and worked on and recorded here and there, you know, off and on for the last eight years. When we did talk the last time, you, you talked about, I mean, you, you say, you know, that, that there's no real, you know, marketing, you know, expertise that you have. But you did kind of mention something back then, which I thought was really, you know, kind of interesting. You know, at least with the Licorice Quartet, you released, you know, three EPs over the course of time rather than just dropping a full-length record all at once. And as you explained it, it was kind of a, a way to extend the brand rather than just blurt it all out and have it sink or swim. You know, now you are in control of the pacing of when it's released. And I wonder the the, the rationale behind it, because I think it's catching on. You see so many other artists releasing four-song EPs, six-song EPs, as opposed to like a 10-, 12-song album and then you don't hear anything for a good long time simply because it's so cumbersome to do all this DIY stuff yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, um, I don't even know how people do it without cracking up, but everybody's being bombarded in so many different directions, including what they choose to voluntarily expose themselves to just surfing through YouTube or something. And I think a good solid four songs from a listener base that is still interested. It just gives them something to be with and sink their teeth into and spend time with in a way that they is very different than when they were in high school or college, for example. You know, when you could shut the door and go, I'm going to turn out the lights and kick back on my bed and listen to this all of side one or something. Right. And you made an investment. And, and while you were doing that, I mean, you can't, that's one of the reasons you you could have a band like Pink Floyd, uh, which is you can only have fans of Pink Floyd if people like shut off the world for a second. You know, if they want to in, ingest something and facilitate some kind of other level of consciousness, that's fine, too. All of that's going to work for the listening process. Uh, even if it's yourself, a couple of your buddies, you're listening and nobody's talking to each other you're you're giving you're giving the art your attention then it's furthered if you go see the band live but if a new pink floyd album came back out back in the day or even you know the progressive rocks that we were talking about it was like oh this is going to be a journey uh this is going to be a commitment and an investment and we've been trained decade after decade for the most part to consume and sample as much as humanly possible as quickly as possible it's, it's just music's become so much more disposable and again that's that's a cultural silent agreement nobody said this is what's going to happen uh the, the corporate side of it and then the consciousness or unconsciousness of the listener agreed to that and you know sure sure there's ambient music that's made for relaxation and chilling out or whatever but it's it's really more uh enjoyed as a form of it's, it's wallpaper it's background music it's like soundtrack to i'm gonna take a shower i'm gonna garden i'm gonna wash the dishes no one's admiring uh the musicianship of the guitarist no one's getting into lyrical meaning and and spending time dissecting and people just consume music very very differently you know so many people now you're basically exposing themselves in 30 second increments on tiktok or or, or you know, short you know, you know, videos on on YouTube or Instagram. It's I mean, to me, it's kind of it's kind of a sad way of looking at what the the future of music is going to be if that's the direction it's going to go. Because, like you say, I mean, 
you know, sometimes a song takes some time to get into, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't, yeah. you know, it, it, the impact of a 30 second video doesn't really lend itself for a lot of craftsmanship and, and songwriting and, and instrumentation. Correct. And again, that's been some weird, uh, I didn't see it coming silent agreement between the manufacturing product side of it and an audience and with file sharing and the ease of access, including free to audio, as opposed to throwing down part of your paycheck for that week to get the new whatever record, you know, you're like, I'd spent good money on this CD. Damn it. I'm going to put it in my car and I'm going to listen to it. Right. And and often somebody bought it because of a song they heard on the radio that they liked. So they got another 10 or 12 songs. No idea if they were going to like them or not. They were just going on the one single. And then, like you said, what happened was, Oh, I'm listening to all of side one. Oh, that's interesting. Tracks four and five are kind of cool too. Uh, even though they're not on the radio, right. you know, even though my friends aren't also listening to it. And obviously it can be a cultural thing. And we all were introduced to music and it became part of coming of age, whatever with our friends, but really the only communal aspect of it and the appreciation for the uniqueness of what human beings can do with music is seeing live music, right? Because then, then it becomes more than wallpaper and background. It's like, now there's a whole experience interacting with the music makers, any visuals that they're choosing to share. Uh, and that's a great thing. And it's the kind of last aspect of uh, the comprehensive expression of, of popular music or whatever, because other, otherwise it's so, it's so computer generated, even the, the, the voice that I'm, fa I'm fascinated when, when, People are moved today by what's being offered because to me it sounds like a bunch of robots in a room pushing buttons. <laughs> I have no problem with I have no problem with electronic EDM based music that's that is computer generated, like a lot of dance stuff. To me, when that stuff is done well, it can be very moving, uh, certainly rhythmically. But there's so much nuance and subtlety from popular music that I grew up with that's been removed. And again, I'm not blaming the creators or it's a two-way street between the audience and the creators. The creators are just putting stuff out. The audience is going, yes, more robot music, please. <laughs> but but also I, I have to remember when I was born, popular jazz of the first half of the century was dying. It's coming to an end. It was being handed off to rock and roll. Rock was in its infancy. It had just been born about 10 years before I showed up on the planet. So I inherited rock in its infancy and all the things that were happening with rock, British invasion and psychedelic and blah, 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 and even jazz rock. But what my parents and grandparents had as the norm, you know, Gershwin inspired jazz, Cole Porter, Broadway, crooners, Bing Crosby, and, uh, Frank Sinatra, all, it was all jazz information. That was that was dying. So it was hard for me when I would hear that stuff. It was hard to relate to it because it's not it's not how I was educated. Right. Yeah. Twenty five years later, I would actually go back and start learning about that era of music. And there were parts of jazz that I love that to play that inspired me that I was trained in. I still enjoy to this day. But in general, my foundation is rock pop of the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, of course. And and that's not that was de that was dethroned in the late nineties 
Uh, and if a band like U2 can have a career right now, and that's like when my parents went and saw the Rat Pack show with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and and uh, I forget who the uh, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. You know, that's what it's like to go see. Oh, ACDC and Guns N' Roses are playing a festival together. I have to remember that, <laughs> even though I still feel like a teenager. Right. You know, with my relationship to music. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I think the way you write music and it, that continues today, it you know, it is it is sometimes less like, you know, the rock uh, you know, that, that you and I may have grown up with. But there's something kind of inherently classic about, you know, those those crooners and the jazz you know tradition and the way you write. It's not just simple uh, like a, you know three chord song it's like yeah, there's a lot going on in these songs there's yeah. you know there's there's so much texture in the way you write you know while that may have been a dying genre as when you and i were kids because you and i are practically just about the same age you know while that may have been dying you certainly were inspired by a good deal of that even even when you were in your early 20s i can kind of hear that in your music well i i always and seems like uh, i was drawn to people who shared this but I've always loved the simplicity of a three and a half minute pop tune. And again, that can be like a pop funk song or pop rock or, and when I say pop, I mean, it's got a simplicity on the surface, a catchiness to it, a sing-along aspect, uh, a, a great groove feel beat right out of the gate. Uh, you know, people like Beatles were masters of this, but so were people like Cheap Trick and Echo and the Bunnymen and Soundgarden. I mean, I, I can keep going. So that that always appealed to me, you know. Uh, also, simultaneously, a lot of that music—Beach Boys, Steely Dan, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Queen—there was there was a sophistication that kind of held it together, made it special, unique, from group to group. You know, Michael McDonald and Doobie Brothers had their sound, and the Smiths had their version of it, and it was always this beautiful marriage. Again, I, you know. Beatles, Beach Boys were epitomes of these types of things. This beautiful marriage and a lot of prog rock. You know, I, I, the band Yes is John Anderson walking into the rehearsal room with a, a four or five chord folk song. Then he hands it off to his bandmates and they all go crazy. <laughs> and they take those four or five songs yeah. and just stretch it out to the moon. But you never lose John's very simple, lyrical, sing-along melody. Right? So that's that's the... That's the a good, very good example of that marriage. So whenever I would work with my collaborators, we always tried to make that marriage uh, an important thing. And it was natural for us when we when we'd write, or somebody would that we might have a very simple chorus sing along, but then we'd spend all this time arranging it uh, in fascinating, interesting ways. Because part of what you're trying to do is just not copy your heroes, right? You know, like what twist can we put on? So that always valued. And um, I'll often go back to a band like Steely Dan because I'm always in awe of how successful they were and how catchy their sound and songs were to vast numbers of people worldwide. And yet to this day, it, it's some of the most sophisticated, intricate, heavily arranged, heavily thought out, time sculpted pop uh, that I've known in my brief lifetime. Well, I mean, you could you could make the case that there may be some similarities between, say, like Asia and Spilt Milk and the fact that, you know, there was just so much attention to detail and everything that went on in that record. Like nothing, nothing that got recorded was something that was wasted or, you know, shouldn't have been there. I mean, everything was so purposeful. Yeah. 
very, very much. Yeah, very much. I mean, you know, to the, to the point of uh, we often drove ourselves crazy and uh, drove other people crazy because it wasn't that's not how everybody thinks. Not everybody has that kind of myopic architectural o- OCD, uh, you know, anal retentive attention to detail kind of thing. That's that's not for everyone. And plenty of great music has been made not that way. Right. I, I, I fully recognize that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a huge uh, fan of punk rock uh, phase one, two, three, and all of its incarnations. Uh, you know, the, the damned is to this day, one of my favorite bands of all time. And something tells me they weren't sitting there with their pen and paper. Like me and Andy were, <laughs> you know, charting things out, taking a vote on it. Well, what if we tried it this way above, you know, they, they, they had a whole different methodology and I love the results they got from album to album as much as anything, you know? <laughs> so I always use them as such, such a prime example. There's lots of other punk and punks that I adore. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, not everybody gets to the finish line the same way. Sure. You, know, you, you mentioned about you know, performing live and there's always this great connection between your fans and playing live and, and, and what that means. I saw you guys open up for, the Black Crows in the early '90s, and I was, I was, I mean, I was just completely stunned by how great this little band sounded. You know, opening up for the Black Crows, it just sounded so. It it didn't even sound human. It sounded so so perfect. Interestingly enough, on the extended you know version of the of the EP on Radio Days, is a bunch of live tracks, and just the level of vocal harmonies that you guys were able to recreate live you don't see very often anyone taking the time to have them sound that good. I mean, you know, vocals are hard live, no matter, no matter what you do, but when you spend that much time to be well rehearsed enough to do it live and keep those harmonies in, as opposed to say, ah, fuck it. Who needs it? You kept them in. And I think it was, I mean, to hear those tracks are just like, wow, this, this sound amazing. Uh, Thank you for noticing. Thank you for your compliments. Uh, when, you could get past the hurdle of the training and practice, like you said, very time consuming, just like an athlete. The end result was always so gratifying to us. And we were always um, very proud to share that part of our artistry with the fans that uh, I've tried to continue to do it as much as possible. Um, but it is it is one of the reasons I'm not out performing every week or going on any little mini tours because not everybody can do that. And when I find people who can accompany me doing that, I got to pay them well because they're working their asses off for me. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, it's a really challenging thing to finance all, all, all the logistics. Are, and, and frankly, for me, uh, it's very hard for me to be a lead vocalist for an entirety of a set with, with all that going on. Uh, I'll, I'll change keys of songs, whatever I have to do to make it a little more comfortable. And, um, and I'm, I'm happy I've performed what I have and has been able to get that together. And there are people here in Los Angeles who uh, appreciate and value what I want to do. And I can, I can work with them. Uh, but the live thing for me has been very, very challenging. So yeah. I'm so I'm thankful that there are, that somebody was rolling some camera uh, before iPhones back in the jellyfish days or even my other band imperial drag and there is footage out there that people can see i somebody sent me a link to uh jellyfish i think it was uh during the spilt milk tour in germany or something maybe 
uh, performing joining a fan club <clears throat> which is just harmony singing from beginning to end right. except for the instrumental solo in the middle and um even i was watching that going i i could feel i was feeling exhausted <laughs> as if i was reliving the moment just watching it yeah. i was very happy that i was like wow we we were really having a good night man you know things sound in tune sounds tight that's great i'm really glad that's up here but i was just like wow did we bite off a lot and i'm glad we did um again i'm i'm that's what it was all about time I, I remember interviewing uh you know jason faulkner a couple of times and and you know we, i talked about you know seeing you guys live that that first time and you know how great it sounded and his reactions was he's like well jesus we certainly worked hard enough to make it sound right <laughs> that was a very very rehearsed unit that you guys were and 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 you know it it showed back then and it and it shows you know back now you know to re to record live tracks and include them in this whole thing you know it, it's kind of what makes like you know this thing you know, it's an EP, but it, but it, but it listens like a full length album because I mean, you not only included all the glamping, but those live tracks too. It's really, yeah, really, really cool the way you did it. It's a nice, it's a nice collection. And that was actually uh, Omnivore, the label it's out on. It was their idea to coalesce all this material uh, and, and re-release glamping on there for all those people that missed my campaign in 2018. So yeah, I'm, I'm again, I'm just super grateful coming in and out of COVID and everything that here's something that people can sink their teeth into. People who, uh, who have listened to this podcast know, uh, my, uh, my friendship with Cheryl Pavelski from, from Omnivore. Oh, okay. We went to college together. So I've known her, oh. I've known her since we were 18. And, Amazing. Yeah. She's, and she's thing that's so interesting about what she does. I mean, Omnivore primarily releases historical, you know, recordings and, and, and re-releases them and does a magnificent job with them but when she releases new music she does it only with stuff that she truly believes in she does you know she doesn't just release stuff just for the sake of releasing it she really has to have like a passion for what you guys do like and you did it with uh you know at tv eyes with jason i think that was a, a an omnivore release the box set of jellyfish was an omnivore release she's been in your corner for a good long time and i'm not really surprised that she suggested combining both of those EPs together because, you know, clearly she knows what she's talking about. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very lucky to uh, know each other and have, have done these, these projects together. You got a lot of help in, in both of these, these EPs. You know, you know, Jason was involved in, in some of the Raya Workman had been involved, but then you also is, you know, kind of going through the, you know, the glamping EP that I got in 2018 and, and then, uh, you know, eventually, you know, interviewing him, the guy that I think is really one of these underrated geniuses is Blue McCauley. I am blown away by by him, and I know you've worked on some of his stuff, but what an amazing talent he is. And, and you two both kind of share this great, you know, melodic talent. Tell me a little bit about working with Blue. Well, the good thing about working with Blue is um, our skill sets are very similar, uh, and then there's differences, so we can complement each other that way. Just, you know, for example, he has a classic male tenor voice. He has a different register than mine. And then my, vo my voice does different things uh, than his. So we're, so that's why I included him on so many of the harmony structures on the record. And uh, his, just his general aesthetic and what he looks for in his own writing, it's enough in the same camp that I can make suggestions to him. You know, one of my favorite things he did, obviously his singing is wonderful, but my thing he is he played 
like the world's shortest, greatest guitar solo <laughs> on the song Operator. Uh, it's it's a it's just I didn't intend for it to be this way. Just the way it unfolded. It's almost like a half verse, and I didn't want to sing. I said I want this to be a musical departure, and I I said to him, I'm hearing like a guitar solo, but I don't want it to just be like a blues lead, you know, for 16 bars. Come up with something, and he came up with what you heard. <laughs> One pass. I didn't change a single note, and what he essentially did is he he harmonized himself, he doubled himself. There's probably I don't know eight to 10 guitar tracks that are all smushed together into this very melodic shape. It's very catchy, even though it goes by in a flash, it's very catchy. He spent time on the sound so that you go, well, that's a guitar, but it sounds super weird. Uh, and he, he, he just, I don't know what he did. I don't care what he did. It's perfect. And that only comes from us having enough of the same record collection. You know, it, 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 I don't know what inspired him, but it's something in my record collection as well. And uh, I don't have to tell you that, you know, there's not too many uh, who have, you know, you can, you can say, oh, well, we all like this Jeff Lynn moment or whatever. Right. That's great. And I can relate to it, but you got, you got to be able to pick up your instrument and play that type of thing. Right. Not everybody can, can do that. Has, not everybody's practiced and trained enough to do that. Uh, Blue's definitely one of those people. And uh, so I'm just, happy he lives in Los Angeles. And he's the one that reached out to me years ago. I was not familiar with him. He brought me into a few things. And then that led to me uh, trusting him enough to want to have him be a part of what I was trying to get off the ground. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You, you mentioned him and, and, and Jeff Lynn, and I'm going to just drop a couple names here because the way I found out about him is I was interviewing our Stevie Moore, who Jason had worked with. And, you know, we talked about music that we both, that we both loved. And he, and Stevie sent me this this video of Blue's LEO project, which was an ELO uh, yeah. you know, tribute, which is remarkable. And as I'm listening it, listening to it, uh, I I could not believe what I was hearing because all of a sudden he got Andy Sturmer out of hiding to do vocals, which I like. How the hell did he pull that off? I mean, a guy who has virtually you know eradicated himself from the face of the earth is suddenly showing up Blue, on Blue Macaulay's records. I couldn't, I could not believe he got that. I think a lot of people were pleasantly surprised. Very pleasantly. But yeah, and he's, he's, he's amazing. But, but you also got, you know, help from, uh, you know, Chris Price co-written a lot of these songs. I don't know how, how many songs was he a part of on, on both of those EP? Was it just well, clamping or, or this one too? No, uh, both, uh, because all the material was done or started at the same time. But I again, I released it in chunks as I finished it. So um, Chris was somebody who had been floating around town. Uh, I did not know about him. I forget who introduced me. And um, I was so frustrated and, and I was so slowed down by personal things happening in my life that I was like, man, if I don't, if I don't take one step forward in finishing this material, it's not going to be finished. And this was in my early 40s about 10 years ago and i reached out to chris i said dude i know you're incredible instrumentalist songwriter how are you with lyrics he goes i write lyrics like anybody else like i'm like great i'm gonna bring you some ideas because the the slowest part for me is lyrics yeah. now i've written a ton of lyrics at this point on my solo stuff but it's like giving birth it takes takes me a very very long time uh 
I don't stop until I finish. I have something beginning to end that is solid. Um, but it always comes, it always comes last. So I was just looking for ways to speed up the process. I was like, this guy wants, I go, it's not going to hurt for me to give him a chance to try out some lyric ideas. Uh, worst case scenario, say, Hey, thank you for trying, but no, thank you. I'm not interested. But most of the ideas he came up with, I was interested in, uh, like I'm not your cowboy. Uh, he helped me finish, um, rocking it our way, which was always going to be challenge and and he had that really great marriage between interesting lyrical concepts but still keeping it simple and sing along and and I knew I knew because he was such a great instrumentalist that he would understand that the words the words can't change the melody I don't want the lyrics to be so sophisticated and weird and clever that I'm now adding new melody notes all over the place and new rhythms I I was sold on the melody line I wanted to be you know, soaring, lyrical, simple, and the lyric would have to flow that way. Now, that's not every, that's not something every lyricist can do. Uh, but Chris, Chris was very fast at it, very good at it, and the lyrics he contributed to, most of them, I only changed something here or there. Maybe there were one or two where I rewrote a whole second half or whatever, but they were pretty much his lyric ideas. It was it was that quick and that good, and thank God because it helped me kickstart that batch of songs right i would think that would be so hard to do even if you had the ability to to write to write lyrics because you know and i don't know how like like you know <laughs> elton john and bernie toppin did it so often because you know, bernie toppin may have an idea in his head but you know it's sometimes like bad lyrics can destroy a song no matter how well it is written and 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 they just like you know like two the two of them hit over and over again that's I mean, that's a that's a remarkable uh, skill set. Have you ever seen Have you ever seen the documentary of uh, the making of the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road album? Yeah. Right. So there's a scene in there where they kind of talk about what you just did. Basically, Elton got very lucky very early on in meeting Bernie. Uh, in that, Elton's musical abilities and his songwriting abilities, even at his very young age in the '60s, that was not in question or in doubt, but he was not a lyricist and apparently that's all bernie did that's all bernie was interested in and he would just like fire off stuff in in the goodbye yellow brick road documentary they talk about how most of that record was written in the morning at the breakfast table when everybody would gather for breakfast and elton would eat his breakfast and he'd go over to the piano that was seated in there and there'd be a stack of paper on top of the piano and it was bernie top and lyrics that he'd either written months ago or he'd written the day before. They're just in the pile, you know, to be gone through. And Elton would grab one, put it in front of the music, kind of read through it. Okay, this is kind of evoking this for me. And it was almost like, of course, Elton's listening and going, am I liking what I'm creating here? Is this is this idea inspiring? But he also kind of had, you know, the right. peanut gallery sitting at the dinner table. <laughs> and it was like, you know, is this idea moving you guys? Should we inspire it? And it was sometimes yes and sometimes no. It's like, okay, if the answer was no, all right, get rid of that one. Grab the next one on the top of the page. You know, it was literally like that. Almost this, this factory aspect to it. But you could do that because Elton clearly appreciated Bernie's style, his, his whole angle on it. And 
they, they were just lucky that it, it added up together. But both Bernie and Elton were highly prolific and clearly they were versed in being unattached. You know, if this one's not working out for some reason, on to the next one. Yeah. Well, thankfully there was there was a next one. So when when you collaborate and whether it's you know your music or your lyrics or the other way around, I mean, do you kind of look at, the, at it in the same way to work for you, or is are your skills just you know different than that? Well, in the in the lyric department, I I know having worked with some incredible lyricists over the years, be grateful for that for sure. I'm uh, I always got into I was always fascinated by music by the musical mechanics. The lyrics to me were always like another instrument. Sure. Uh, it was like a saxophone blasting on the side. That's not where my focus was. My focus was always in what's the music doing. So if the singer was singing a melody that was inspiring me, nine times out of ten, it wasn't because of what they were saying. It was what the melody shape was doing. And if I thought if a, if a lyric came at me and I thought it was silly, I'd go, that's goofy. But if a lyric was great, I just took it in as it's 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 the greatness is part of the music it's part of the lyric it's all one big ball so i st- to this day i love bob dylan because of his music the, the the lyrics i appreciate and enjoy but they don't inspire me the way they have for droves and droves and droves of his audience i mean yeah. so so much of why he is who he is is because of, the, of his poetry right i mean i enjoy bob dylan but not as much as a lot of other artists. And the Bob Dylan I do enjoy is because, oh, I like that melody and that chord situation happening there. It's interesting here you say that because when I listen to music, I'm kind of feeling the same way you are. I listen to the music first and maybe the lyrics second, or maybe it's like a, like a tertiary type of thing for me. But like I said, you know, you, when, when lyrics are working with a song, sometimes I don't notice them or I'll take time to, to, to study them. When they're bad, they hang out there. But when they're good, it right. just it just works as, as a great song. You know, it's it, it, like for example, like Paul Simon would be a guy who does both great and. But yeah. I am listening to the the melody of the song far quicker than I'm listening to you know what he's having to say. Right. My my prime example is always for this share is is Elvis Costello. Uh, that was going to be my he, next. He, yeah. He, right. He's a master of both. As far as I'm concerned, but I always got into music first. Do I like this song or not like the song? Do I like what they're doing with the instruments, the arrangement? Is his, his melody affecting me? You know, like a song like Veronica or whatever, just like instantly I'm like, oh my God, this is making me feel so good. Oh my God, I love what they're doing. Listen to that bridge. Look, it's so cool. Oh, the little clarinet instrument in the blah, blah, blah. And then I'll go back and because I've listened to the song now 50 times, 100 times, going, that's kind of neat, that wordplay he was doing with the lyric. Oh, that's fascinating. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I see. And then in the bridge, he does this whole twist. He turns it on its head lyrically, and I can appreciate that. Yeah. But that's not my go-to. <laughs> so when I write lyrics, I'm conscious of all that stuff. I mean, there are songs that you have on those EPs there that the core of the music, like, okay, I know that's a solid verse, a solid chorus that I like. I just need a intro and an outro and I some kind of bridge I already know what we're going to have here I can I can do that and have in 20 to 30 minutes that a lyric for that song can take me three weeks and I'm not kidding (laughs) going down to my room every day in my studio here pad and paper and just start 
trying stuff, trying stuff. Eight hours later, uh, maybe I got a verse I think is kind of neat. Come back the next day. It's gone for three weeks. And when I've got it, I've got it. And I, 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 I'm confident now to share this with the world, but I'm just not fast in that respect. Yeah. So it was really important for, like I said, somebody like Chris to kind of kickstart it for me. But collaborating is a total art and dance in and of itself because it really requires sensitivity, personal skills, uh, dip- diplomacy, communication skills. Every artist, including myself, is entering a collaborative process with some level of insecurity about what they do. Even if he says, oh, but you're a great singer. and I love your lyrics. If that person has any insecurities in that area, they're going to be apprehensive and tentative in opening up and being vulnerable and allowing themselves to be seen in this uh, collaborative process. It's it's a, uh, well, there's intimacy has to be involved. And I got news for you. Most men aren't very practiced or very good at that. Uh, often most men in the arts can do that through their art, often only through their art. And you could argue maybe women are a little more practiced at that, but I haven't, I've certainly collaborated with women over the years. That just hasn't been what's happened though. It, a lot of women haven't come into my uh, purview that way in an artistic capacity. So uh, all this is to say, even though I've been collaborating with people off and on for 35 years, every situation's different. Yeah. You know, and I think it, I've got a little bit better at it. Well, I mean, you, you, the the results of what you've done in collaboration have been pretty remarkable, even just a, even apart from, you know, what you did with Andy and Jellyfish. Although, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to discount, you know, what you guys were able to do in spite of the fact that you are very, very different people with, you know, different motivations and different, you know, ways of, of, you know, conducting yourself professionally and personally, but in any collaboration, I mean, there's always a bit of selflessness, but also self-advocacy that's necessary to make it work. You can't, you can't, exactly. just, you just can't be mowed down by, you know, different egos and different, you know, exactly. yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's challenging to do. It's, uh, I believe some of the best collaborations, partnerships, whether we're a duo or a whole band come from, and this is, this goes for intimate uh, you know, love relationship too, if you're partners in your life. Um, if you're two the same, it's going to get boring real quick. Right. And there's not going to be a lot of variety in ideas. If there's too much friction and you don't have enough that lines up, well, then you don't meet up anywhere. So it's that, it's that fine point of each other's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, what, what was different about your record collection that you're bringing to the table um, but there's got to be enough overlap, like I said when I was talking about with Blue, where you can move forward down a path. But then you also have to be like, somebody brings in an idea and it's rubbing you the wrong way for whatever reason. You have to be able to say, this is reminding me of this and it's taking it into this territory and I'm not okay with that. It's, 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 <laughs> there's no, see, this is, if I always joke, if I started my own music school, which I have no plans to do, but. <laughs> You know how in college you would often have your general education classes, right? And you had to take you had to take those before you can even think about specializing or getting a degree. Everybody takes their GE classes. Well, in Rogers Music School, two GE classes that you have to take it's not it's not optional are finance, basic business classes, 
So heaven heaven forbid, in the event that you do make some money, you don't just piss it all away. So your parents you were know, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that you make some kind of uh, educated, informed decisions of how to money manage, how yeah. to negotiate your fees, how to um, establish a worth of your product, your on and on and on. That's 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 almost obvious. But I don't know a single music school that requires that. And then most importantly, uh, one or two basic courses about uh, basic communication skills, uh, diplomacy. Again, how to negotiate for a win-win. How to how to speak up for yourself and uh, say this is not okay for me. Yeah. This is what a this is what a healthy boundary looks like if we're going to have this band dynamic. Some. Uh, how how to have an idea eloquently convey that idea and then how to debate your idea how how to negotiate for what you want and how to hear the word no no thank you but still be able to negotiate for a win-win because that's what you all want right. you all want some win-win out of this and you wouldn't if you didn't believe that you know the sum of your parts was greater than each of your contributions individually you wouldn't have formed a band and especially if you're getting success, the whole thing can fall apart and crash and burns. If people if people don't even understand what an ego is, how do you, how does one define an ego? And are you the master of your ego? Are you constantly at the effect of your ego? And any one of these things can shoot out of the skies the most incredible artistic uh, project, whether you're a solo artist or have a band. And, you know, there are bands to this day that we all are aware of that absolutely don't get along. <laughs> they take separate limousines and separate jets to the show, but they're still making millions. And that's what, what ended up happening in those situations is these are highly dysfunctional people in highly dysfunctional situations. But the money justifies everything and the money, the money can make it work. Well, a lot of bands don't get to that point. They break up before that happens. And a lot of times what you see is you see you know, bands just, you know, existing purely for that. And, you know, they can't make decent music, no matter how logical it would be if they were able to put those things aside. And I'm not, I'm not naming names, but it, the one band I'm thinking rhymes with the Rolling Stones, you know, it's just like, you know, they haven't had yeah. that great album. And when they were responsible for so many great ones, it's like, you know, so many of those, the last few albums seem like it's just, you know, it's all, you know, wrote work and just, uh, you know, there's not, the passion that they would have had years ago, you know, aren't the thing, isn't the thing that guides them today. Well, it, yeah. And part of the issue is, and I, I wish this wasn't the case. I understand it, but on some level, there's a aspect of self doubt and that some younger person at the record company or some young hot producer or young hot songwriter somehow knows better than them <laughs> right. within the case of the Rolling Stones, you know, what, a, 15 albums of just pure gold and genius that okay maybe um jimmy miller the producer he was the call him the sixth rolling stone and they trusted his opinions implicitly but those albums are those guys creating their their thing it's a hundred percent them the yeah. good bad and the ugly and uh a lot of artists as they mature they for they forfeit that they like under some delusion that the the press or the the market knows better somehow yeah as opposed to we're going to lock ourselves in a room for six months with a trusted engineer yep and we're not going to come out until we're all looking at each other and going guys we did it 
I know, I know it was a struggle. I know it was a mess, but look, <laughs> look what we have. That, yeah. I don't know. That's the only way to do it. Whether you're fan with history, like Rolling Stones or just starting out, you have to have self-awareness and, and, and there's this factory machine now where so much of the responsibility is put on the producer's shoulder. You know, it's, it's almost, it's not a wrong way to make a record, but I've always been interested in that untainted, unadulterated purity of vision that a Todd Rundgren had or a Jeff Lynn had or Elvis Costello had. I mean, even, even Queen is so Freddie. Now the other guys' personalities are in there for sure. sure. And obviously they wrote songs and they sang. But in the Queen Pyramid, it's it's Freddie's essence, certainly as the lead voice, you know, and, and like him, like him or not. He's the he's the grand color, he's the grand paintbrush that the Queen aesthetic is. And um now it's like I don't know if I'm getting the producer of the week, a couple of computer plugins that right. do things and change sounds and colorize stuff how much how much of it is the singer songwriter in their bedroom whose relationship with their significant other just exploded in their face and they don't know what to do about it you know and they're right they're writing a heartbreak song in a way that after 50 years of heartbreak songs or more is still different and unique and personal to them that's what i'm missing and then it gets presented in a way that even though we've heard the Beatles do it, we've even heard, we've heard Buddy Holly do it, we've heard Frank Sinatra do it, and on and on and on and on, and we've heard Sinead O'Connor do it, and yeah, right. that it's still, oh my God, you, you're still giving it something that sounds virtually unheard. Uh, it's so fresh. Um, I, right now, to me, it's just like, pale versions of previous pale versions of previous pale versions. And, uh, but the, the, the 15 year old highly influenced, uh, young adult who simply hasn't been on the planet long enough to explore all of the options they were offered. TikTok shoving this one option down their throat, just like, I mean, like corporate radio used to, but that's what's here. It's being reinforced by their social group. I get all this. The same thing happened with me and with a band like Rush. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I was in high school, I was like, everybody's listening to Rush. What, what's going on? <laughs> you know, um, I ended up liking some of Rush, but um, yeah, it, it's just, uh, and I could say, oh, well, I feel like they're getting ripped off and cheated, but if it's, if it's moving their soul, I'm trying to remember who I was having this conversation with, but we had a discussion about, about exactly what you're talking about. And, and how, you know, there is this, I don't know, maybe we're, we're in like a, a rut or, or, you know, some sort of lull creatively. But it always seems to me that whenever that happens with art or music or, you know, anything, somebody winds up figuring something out that no one's ever thought of before, and it resets the clock. Like suddenly, you know, like your know, music is struggling right now to figure out where it wants to go and what it, what it wants to be when it grows up. But there's always these moments throughout music history where somebody gives you something that is unique and different and, and groundbreaking. And I, and I think for music fans, we're kind of waiting for that to happen and expecting that to happen at some point. We just don't know what form that's going to come in, but it seems to me that we can't be too far away from that. Like something, something will break. Maybe, maybe it's like, you know, you know, affordable concert tickets or, you know, maybe it's, you know, the way we're, 
you know, we're recording. Maybe, you know, there's another DIY approach that no one has figured out. You know, to me, that's the kind of thing that's maybe on the horizon, and I certainly hope it is. And I, and I, and I have to believe, like, artists like yourself are constantly looking for, well, what is that thing going to be? I mean, I remember growing up and being inspired by, you know, even the simple, the simple, obvi- almost obviousness of, like, a band like The Police taking all the punk rock energy that was happening in the UK at the time, but also reggae was making its way into England full full force. And they successfully fused those worlds right. into something that was still very accessible and danceable and melodic um, and interesting and clever and still very simple. Uh, it was, that, again, that kind of match between that heady sophistication and just dumb and fun. I remember when I started writing seriously and then collaborating with Andy and really enjoying the songwriting process and all the possibilities. It's a real exercise in self-awareness and I'm still learning about it, but it was very clear to me that I was operating under a, again, my ideas that I would bring to the party. It was very, there was a classicism to it. Uh, there was There was a very kind of straightforward pop rock that I was expanding upon. And my collaborators seemed to enjoy doing that too. Now, I was very aware of like, well, I'm not, I'm not inventing some new kind of music here. I'm not reinventing the wheel. I was very aware that I was carrying on in a, in a tradition. There was a classicism to it. It was always important to me that no matter what year somebody listened to a jellyfish song, in this case, but this is kind of continued with my solo stuff, that you couldn't really date it. In other words, it it it's not that it was futuristic or anything, but that that the whole point of it was that it was a an earworm, a sing-along, something so memorable and inspiring that you couldn't get it out of your head. So again, that that's how and that's jellyfish fans' responses, whether you were around in the early 90s when those records were released, or 20 years later and you're discovering the music, that's the effect. It's like people are like, oh, I just like this song. Uh, we we were conscious about not trying to make it overtly nostalgic or anything like that, but we also weren't hell bent on modernism and employing the latest and greatest technology and having this futuristic element to it. It was just like this is just solid sing along pop rock. That's all we ever wanted to do. So I, I feel we achieved that goal, but I'm also very aware that I can sit here and get on my soapbox and you know, preach the high heavens, complain about modern music or whatever, or teenage pop of the last 15 years and go, you know, it leaves me flat. When is somebody going to reinvent the wheel? Like you said, like, well, I, I, I could go do that. And I haven't because I, because to put you know, putting British punk and reggae into some creative little ball, like the police did has never occurred to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't done anything like that. So, but so I understand that my, um, often what might be construed as arrogance or mightier than thou, or I apologize in advance <laughs> for that tone. Well, I don't, I don't see it being that, uh, that way at all. Um, like I said, Roger, I, I've, I've been a fan of yours from, from the beginning and it, it's, it's always wonderful to get something new from you and to keep going back and listening to the stuff that to me has only gotten better over time. So I do appreciate the time you spent uh, with me today. It's great to talk to you again and best of luck. Absolutely. Thanks for the interview and and, uh, sharing with your audience. Thank you, Roger. Cool. You take care. The name of Roger's latest EP on Omnivore Recordings is called Radio Days. And if you've never heard Spilt Milk by Jellyfish, do yourself a favor and listen to it. It is absolutely 
amazing. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, rate it, tell all your friends about it. You can check out our regular updates on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can email me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.